0: Section 7 of Heroes Every Child Should Know. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Jines, Salt Lake City, Utah. Heroes Every Child Should Know by Hamilton Wright Maybe. Section 7. King Arthur. Adapted from stories from La Mort Arthur and the Mabinogan by Beatrice Clay. Long years ago there ruled over Britain a king called Uther Pendragon. A mighty prince was he, and feared by all men, yet when he sought the love of the fair Eugrin of Cornwall she would have naught to do with him, so that, from grief and disappointment, Uther fell sick, and at last seemed like to die. Now in those days there lived a famous magician named Merlin so powerful that he could change his form at will or even make himself invisible nor was there any place so remote but that he could reach it at once merely by wishing himself there one day suddenly he stood at uther's bedside and said sir king i know thy grief and am ready to help thee only promise to give me at his birth the son that shall be born to thee "'and thou shalt have thy heart's desire.' "'To this the king agreed joyfully, "'and Merlin kept his word, "'for he gave Uther the form of one whom Eugran had loved dearly, "'and so she took him willingly for her husband. "'When the time had come that a child should be born to the king and queen, "'Merlin appeared before Uther to remind him of his promise, "'and Uther swore it should be as he had said.' Three days later a prince was born, and, with pomp and ceremony, was christened by the name of Arthur, but immediately thereafter the king commanded that the child should be carried to the postern gate, there to be given to the old man, who would be found waiting without. Not long after Uther fell sick, and he knew that his end was come. So by Merlin's advice he called together his knights and barons, and said to them, My death draws near. I charge you, therefore, that ye obey my son even as ye have obeyed me, and my curse upon him if he claim not the crown when he is a man grown. Then the king turned his face to the wall and died. Scarcely was Uther laid in his grave before disputes arose. Few of the nobles had seen Arthur or even heard of him, and not one of them would have been willing to be ruled by a child rather each thought himself fitted to be king and strengthening his own castle made war on his neighbours until confusion alone was supreme and the poor groaned because there was none to help them now when merlin carried away arthur for merlin was the old man who had stood at the postern gate he had known all that would happen and had taken the child to keep him safe from the fierce barons, until he should be of age to rule wisely and well, and perform all the wonders prophesied of him. He gave the child to the care of the good knight, Sir Ector, to bring up with his son Kay, but revealed not to him that it was the son of Uther Pendragon that was given into his charge. At last, when years had passed and Arthur was grown a tall youth, well skilled in knightly exercises, Merlin went to the Archbishop of Canterbury and advised him that he should call together at Christmas time all the chief men of the realm to the great cathedral in London. For, said Merlin, there shall be seen a great marvel by which it shall be made clear to all men who is the lawful king of this land. The Archbishop did as Merlin counselled. Under pain of a fearful curse, "'he bade barons and knights come to London to keep the feast "'and to pray heaven to send peace to the realm. "'The people hastened to obey the archbishop's commands, "'and from all sides barons and knights came riding in "'to keep the birth-feast of our Lord. "'And when they had prayed and were coming forth from the cathedral, "'they saw a strange sight. "'There in the open space before the church stood on a great stone,' an anvil thrust through with a sword, and on the stone were written these words, Whoso can draw forth this sword is rightful king of Britain born. At once there were fierce quarrels, each man clamoring to be the first to try his fortune, none doubting his own success. Then the archbishop decreed that each should make the venture in turn from the greatest baron to the least knight, and each in turn having put forth his utmost strength, failed to move the sword one inch and drew back ashamed so the archbishop dismissed the company and having appointed guards to watch over the stone sent messengers through all the land to give word of great jousts to be held in london at easter when each knight could give proof of his skill and courage and try whether the adventure of the sword was for him among those who rode to london at easter was the good sir ector and with him his son sir kay newly made a knight and the young arthur when the morning came that the jousts should begin sir kay and arthur mounted their horses and set out for the lists but before they reached the field kay looked and saw that he had left his sword behind immediately arthur turned back to fetch it for him only to find the house fast shut for all were gone to view the tournament sore vexed was arthur fearing lest his brother Kay should lose his chance of gaining glory, till, of a sudden, he bethought him of the sword in the great anvil before the cathedral. Thither he rode with all speed, and the guards having deserted their post to view the tournament, there was none to forbid him the adventure. He leapt from his horse, seized the hilt, and instantly drew forth the sword as easily as from a scabbard, Then, mounting his horse, and thinking no marvel of what he had done, he rode after his brother and handed him the weapon. When Kay looked at it, he saw at once that it was the wondrous sword from the stone. In great joy he sought his father, and showing it to him, said, Then must I be king of Britain? But Sir Ector bade him say how he came by the sword, and when Sir Kay told how Arthur had brought it to him, Sir Ector bent his knee to the boy and said, "'Sir, I perceive that ye are my king, and here I tender you my homage,' and Kay did as his father. Then the three sought the archbishop, to whom they related all that had happened, and he, much marvelling, called the people together to the great stone, and bade Arthur thrust back the sword and draw it forth again in the presence of all, which he did with ease.' But an angry murmur arose from the barons, who cried that what a boy could do, a man could do. So, at the archbishop's word, the sword was put back, and each man, whether baron or knight, tried in his turn to draw it forth, and failed. Then, for the third time, Arthur drew forth the sword. Immediately there arose from the people a great shout, Arthur is king, Arthur is king, we will have no king but Arthur. And though the great barons scowled and threatened, they fell on their knees before him, while the archbishop placed the crown upon his head, and swore to obey him faithfully as their lord and sovereign. Thus Arthur was made king, and to all he did justice, righting wrongs and giving to all their dues. Nor was he forgetful of those that had been his friends, for Kay, whom he loved as a brother, he made seneschal and chief of his household and to Sir Ector, his foster-father, he gave broad lands. Thus Arthur was made king, but he had to fight for his own, for eleven great kings drew together and refused to acknowledge him as their lord, and chief amongst the rebels was King Lot of Orknev, who had married Arthur's sister, Bellicent. By Merlin's advice Arthur sent for help overseas to Ban and Bors, the two great kings who ruled in Gaul. With their aid he overthrew his foes in a great battle near the river Trent, and then he passed with them into their own lands, and helped them drive out their enemies. So there was ever great friendship between Arthur and the kings, Ban and Bors, and all their kindred, and afterwards some of the most famous knights of the round-table were of that kin. Then King Arthur set himself to restore order throughout his kingdom. To all who would submit and amend their evil ways he showed kindness, but to those who persisted in oppression and wrong he removed, putting in their places others who would deal justly with the people, and because the land had become overrun with forest during the days of misrule, he cut roads through the thickets that no longer wild beasts and men, fiercer than the beasts, should lurk in their gloom, to the harm of the weak and defenceless. Thus it came to pass that soon the peasant ploughed his fields in safety, and where had been wastes, men dwelt again in peace and prosperity. Among the lesser kings whom Arthur helped to rebuild their towns and restore order was King Leodegrance of Cameliard. Now Leodegrance had one fair child, his daughter Guinevere, and from the time that first he saw her, Arthur gave her all his love. So he sought counsel of Merlin, his chief adviser. Merlin heard the king sorrowfully, and he said, Sir king, when a man's heart is set, he may not change. Yet had it been well if ye had loved another. So the king sent his knights to Leodegrance to ask of him his daughter, and Leodegrance consented, rejoicing to wed her to so good and knightly a king. With great pomp the princess was conducted to Canterbury, and there the king met her. And the two were wed by the archbishop in the great cathedral, amid the rejoicings of the people. On that same day did Arthur found his order of the round table, the fame of which was to spread throughout Christendom, and endure through all time. Now the round table had been made for King Uther Pendragon, by Merlin, who had meant thereby to set forth plainly to all men the roundness of the earth. After Uther died, King Leodegrance had possessed it. But when Arthur was wed, he sent it to him as a gift, and great was the king's joy at receiving it. One hundred and fifty knights might take their places about it, and for them Merlin made sieges, or seats. One hundred and twenty-eight did Arthur knight at that great feast, Thereafter, if any sieges were empty, at the high festival of Pentecost, new knights were ordained, to fill them, and by magic was the name of each knight found inscribed in letters of gold in his proper siege. One seat only long remained unoccupied, and that was the siege perilous. No knight might occupy it until the coming of Sir Galahad, for without danger to his life none might sit there who was not free from all stain of sin with pomp and ceremony did each knight take upon him the vows of true knighthood to obey the king to show mercy to all who asked it to defend the weak and for no worldly gain to fight in a wrongful cause and all the knights rejoiced together doing honour to arthur and to his queen then they rode forth to right the wrong and help the oppressed and by their aid the king held his realm in peace, doing justice to all. Now, as time passed, King Arthur gathered into his order of the round-table knights whose peers shall never be found in any age, and foremost amongst them was Sir Launcelot du Lac. Such was his strength that none against whom he had laid lance in rest could keep the saddle, and no shield was proof against his sword dent but for his courtesy even more than for his courage and strength, Sir Lancelot was famed far and near. Gentle he was, and ever the first to rejoice in the renown of another, and in the jousts he would avoid encounter with the young and untried knight, letting him pass to gain glory if he might. It would take a great book to record all the famous deeds of Sir Lancelot, and all his adventures. He was of Gaul for his father, King Ban, ruled over Benwick. He was named Lancelot du Lac, by the Lady of the Lake, who reared him when his mother died. Early he won renown, then, when there was peace in his own land, he passed into Britain, to Arthur's court, where the King received him gladly, and made him knight of the round table, and took him for his trustiest friend. And so it was that, when Guinevere was to be brought to Canterbury, To be married to the king, Lancelot was chief of the knights sent to wait upon her, and of this came the sorrow of later days, for from the moment he saw her, Sir Lancelot loved Guinevere, for her sake remaining wifeless all his days, and in all things being her faithful knight. But busybodies and mischief-makers spoke evil of Sir Lancelot and the queen, and from their talk came the undoing of the king and the downfall of his great work. But that was after long years, and after many true knights had lived their lives, honoring the king and queen, and doing great deeds. Before Merlin passed from the world of men, he had uttered many marvelous prophecies, and one that boded ill to King Arthur, for he foretold that, in the days to come, a son of Arthur's sister should stir up bitter war against the king, and at last a great battle should be fought, when many a brave knight should find his doom now among the nephews of arthur was one most dishonourable his name was mordred no knightly deed had he ever done and he hated to hear the good report of others because he himself was a coward and envious but of all the round table there was none that mordred hated more than sir lancelot du lac whom all true knights held in most honour and not the less did Mordred hate Lancelot, that he was the knight whom Guinevere had in most esteem. So at last, his jealous rage passing all bounds, he spoke evil of the Queen and of Lancelot, saying that they were traitors to the King. Now Sir Gawain and Sir Gareth, Mordred's brothers, refused to give ear to those slanders, holding that Sir Lancelot, in his knightly service of the Queen, did honour to King Arthur also but by ill-fortune another brother, Sir Agravaine, did ill-will to the queen, and professed to believe Mordred's evil tales, so the two went to King Arthur with their ill-stories. Now when Arthur had heard them he was wroth, for never would he lightly believe evil of any, and Sir Lancelot was the knight whom he loved above all others. Sternly, then, he bade them be gone, and come no more to him with unproven tales against any and least of all against Sir Launcelot and their lady the queen. The two departed, but in their hearts was hatred against Lancelot and the queen, more bitter than ever for the rebuke they had called down upon themselves. Great was the king's grief, despite all that Mordred could say, he was slow to doubt Sir Launcelot, whom he loved. But his mind was filled with forebodings, and well he knew that their kin would seek vengeance on Sir Launcelot and the noble fellowship of the round table, be utterly destroyed. All too soon it proved even as the king had feared, many were found to hold with Sir Mordred, some from envy of the honour and worship of the noble Sir Lancelot, and among them even were those who dared to raise their voice against the queen herself, calling for judgment upon her, as leagued with a traitor against the king, and as having caused the death of so many good knights." Now, in those days the law was that if any one were accused of treason by witnesses or taken in the act, that one should die the death by burning, be it man or woman, knight or churl. So then the rumours grew to a loud clamour, that the law should have its course, and that King Arthur should pass sentence on the Queen. Then was the King's woe doubled. For, said he, I sit as King to be a rightful judge and keep all the law wherefore I may not do battle for my own queen, and now there is none other to help her. So a decree was issued that Queen Guinevere should be burnt at the stake outside the walls of Carlisle. Forthwith King Arthur sent for his nephew Sir Gawain, and said to him, Fair nephew, I give it in charge to you to see that all is done as has been decreed. But Sir Gawain answered boldly, "'Sir King, never will I be present to see my lady the Queen die. "'It is of ill counsel that ye have consented to her death.' "'Then the King bade Gawain send his two young brothers, Sir Gareth and Sir Gaheris, "'to receive his commands, and these he desired to attend the Queen to the place of execution. "'So Gareth made answer for both. "'My Lord the King, we owe you obedience in all things.' but know that it is sore against our wills that we obey you in this, nor will we appear in arms in the place where that noble lady shall die. Then sorrowfully they mounted their horses and rode to Carlisle. When the day appointed had come, the queen was led forth to a place without the walls of Carlisle, and there she was bound to the stake to be burnt to death. Loud were her lady's lamentations, and many a lord was found to weep at that grievous sight of a queen brought so low. Yet was there none who dared come forward as her champion, lest he should be suspected of treason. As for Gareth and Geharis, they could not bear the sight, and stood with their faces covered in their mantles. Then, just as the torch was to be applied to the faggots, there was a sound as of many horses galloping, And the next instant a band of knights rushed upon the astonished throng their leader cutting down all who crossed his path until he reached the queen whom he lifted to his saddle and bore from the press then all men knew that it was sir lancelot come knightly to rescue the queen and in their hearts they rejoiced so with little hindrance they rode away sir lancelot and all his kin with the queen in their midst till they came to the castle of the joyous Guard, where they held the queen in safety and all reverence at last sir launcelot desired of king arthur assurance of liberty for the queen as also safe conduct for himself and his knights that he might bring dame guinevere with due honour to the king at carlisle and thereto the king pledged his word so launcelot set forth with the queen and behind them rode a hundred knights arrayed in green velvet the housings of the horses of the same all studded with precious stones thus they passed through the city of carlisle openly in the sight of all and there were many who rejoiced that the queen was come again and sir Launcelot with her though they of gawaine's party scowled upon them when they were come into the great hall where arthur sat with sir gawaine and other great lords about him sir Launcelot led guinevere to the throne and both knelt before the king. Then, rising, Sir Launcelot lifted the queen to her feet, and thus he spoke to King Arthur, boldly, and well before the whole court. My lord, Sir Arthur, I bring you here your queen, than whom no truer nor nobler lady ever lived, and here stand I, Sir Launcelot du Lac, ready to do battle with any that dare gainsay it and with these words Sir Lancelot turned and looked upon the lords and knights present in their places, but none would challenge him in that cause, not even Sir Gawain, for he had ever affirmed that Dame Guinevere was a true and honourable lady. Then Sir Lancelot spoke again. "'Now, my lord Arthur, in my own defence, it behooves me to say that never in aught have I been false to you.' "'Peace,' said the king to Sir Lancelot, "'we give you fifteen days in which to leave this kingdom.' "'Then Sir Launcelot sighed heavily and said, "'Full well I see that nothing availeth me.' "'Then he went to the queen where she sat and said, "'Madam, the time is come when I must leave this fair realm that I have loved. "'Think well of me, I pray you, "'and send for me if ever there be aught in which a true knight may serve lady.' Therewith he turned him about, and, without greeting to any, passed through the hall, and with his faithful knights rode to the joyous guard, though ever thereafter, in memory of that sad day, he called it the dolorous Guard. In after times, when the king had passed overseas to France, leaving Sir Mordred to rule Britain in his stead, there came messengers from Britain bearing letters for King Arthur, and more evil news than they brought might not well be, for they told how Sir Mordred had usurped his uncle's realm. First he had caused it to be noised abroad that King Arthur was slain in battle with Sir Lancelot, and since there be many ever ready to believe any idle rumour, and eager for any change, it had been no hard task for Sir Mordred to call the lords to a parliament and persuade them to make him king but the queen could not be brought to believe that her lord was dead so she took refuge in the tower of london from sir mordred's violence nor was she to be induced to leave her strong refuge for aught that mordred could promise or threaten forthwith king arthur bade his host make ready to move and when they had reached the coast they embarked and made sail to reach britain with all possible speed sir mordred on his part had heard of their sailing "'and hasted to get together a great army. "'It was grievous to see how many a stout knight held by Mordred, "'ay, even many whom Arthur himself had raised to honour and fortune. "'For it is in the nature of men to be fickle. "'Thus it was that, when Arthur drew near to Dover, "'he found Mordred with a mighty host, waiting to oppose his landing. "'Then there was a great sea-fight, "'those of Mordred's party going out in boats,' To board King Arthur's ships and slay him and his men, or ever they should come to land. Right valiantly did King Arthur bear him, as was his wont, and boldly his followers fought in his cause, so that at last they drove off their enemies and landed at Dover in spite of Mordred and his array. Now by this time many that Mordred had cheated by his lying reports had drawn unto King Arthur, to whom at heart they had ever been loyal, knowing him for a true and noble king, and hating themselves for having been deceived by such a false usurper as Sir Mordred. One night, as King Arthur slept, he thought that Sir Gawain stood before him, looking just as he did in life, and said to him, "'My uncle and my king, God in his great love has suffered me to come unto you, to warn you that in no wise ye fight on the morrow, for if ye do, ye shall be slain, and with you the most part of the people on both sides. Make ye therefore a treaty. Immediately the king awoke, and called to him the best and wisest of his knights. Then all were agreed that, on any terms whatsoever, a treaty should be made with Sir Mordred, even as Sir Gawain had said." and with the dawn messengers went to the camp of the enemy to call Sir Mordred to a conference. So it was determined that the meeting should take place in the sight of both armies, in an open space between the two camps, and that King Arthur and Mordred should each be accompanied by fourteen knights. Little enough faith had either in the other, so when they set forth to the meeting they bade their hosts join battle if ever they saw a sword drawn. Now as they talked it befell that an adder, coming out of a bush hard by, stung a knight in the foot, and he, seeing the snake, drew his sword to kill it, and thought no harm thereby. But on the instant that the sword flashed, the trumpets blared on both sides, and the two hosts rushed to battle. Never was there fought a fight of such enmity, for brother fought with brother, and comrade with comrade, and fiercely they cut and thrust with many a bitter word between, while King Arthur himself, his heart hot within him, rode through and through the battle, seeking the traitor Mordred. So they fought all day, till at last the evening fell. Then Arthur, looking round him, saw of his valiant knights but two left, Sir Lucan and Sir Bevadere, and these sore wounded, and there over against him, by a great heap of the dead, stood Sir Mordred, the cause of all this ruin. Thereupon the king, his heart, nigh broken with grief for the loss of his true knights, cried with a loud voice, Traitor! Now is thy doom upon thee! And with his spear gripped in both hands, he rushed upon Sir Mordred, and smote him that the weapon stood out a fathom behind. And Sir Mordred knew that he had his death-wound. With all the might that he had, he thrust up the spear to the haft, and with his sword struck King Arthur upon the head. That the steel pierced the helmet and bit into the head, then Mordred fell back, stark and dead. Sir Lucan and Sir Bevadir went to the king where he lay, swooning from the blow, and bore him to a little chapel on the seashore. As they laid him on the ground Sir Lucan fell dead beside the king, and Arthur, coming to himself, found but Sir Bevedere alive beside him so king arthur lay wounded to the death grieving not that his end was come but for the desolation of his kingdom and the loss of his good knights and looking upon the body of sir lucan he sighed and said alas true knight dead for my sake if i lived i should ever grieve for thy death but now mine own end draws nigh then turning to sir bevedere who stood sorrowing beside him, he said, Leave weeping now, for the time is short and much to do. Hereafter thou shalt weep if thou wilt. But now take my sword, Excalibur, hasten to the water-side, and fling it into the deep. Then watch what happens, and bring me word thereof. My lord, said Sir Bevedere, your command shall be obeyed. And taking the sword he departed. But as he went on his way he looked on the sword, how wondrously it was formed, and the hilt all studded with precious stones, and as he looked he called to mind the marvel by which it had come into the king's keeping. For on a certain day as Arthur walked on the shore of a great lake there had appeared above the surface of the water a hand brandishing a sword. On the instant the king had leapt into a boat, and rowing into the lake, had got the sword and brought it back to land." Then he had seen how, on one side the blade, was written, "'Keep me,' but on the other, "'Throw me away.' And sore perplexed he had shown it to Merlin, the great wizard, who said, "'Keep it now. The time for casting away has not yet come.' Thinking on this, it seemed to Bevedere that no good but harm must come of obeying the king's word. So, hiding the sword under a tree, he hastened back to the little chapel. Then said the king, "'What sawest thou?' "'Sir,' answered Bevedere, "'I saw not but the waves, "'heard not but the wind.' "'That is untrue,' said King Arthur. "'I charge thee, as thou art true knight, "'go again, and spare not "'to throw away the sword.' "'Sir Bevedere departed a second time, "'and his mind was to obey his lord, "'but when he took the sword in his hand, "'he thought, "'Sin it is, and shameful, "'to throw away so glorious a sword.' THEN, HIDING IT AGAIN, HE HASTENED BACK TO THE KING. WHAT SAWST THOU, SAID KING ARTHUR? SIR, I SAW THE WATER LAP ON THE CRAGS. THEN SPOKE THE KING IN GREAT WRATH, TRAITOR AND UNKIND, TWICE HAST THOU BETRAYED ME. ART DAZZLED BY THE SPLENDOR OF THE JEWELS? THOU THAT TILL NOW HAST EVER BEEN DEAR AND TRUE TO ME? Go yet again, but if thou fail me this time, I will arise, and with mine own hands slay thee. Then Sir Bevedere left the king, and that time he took the sword quickly from the place where he had hidden it, and forbearing even to look upon it, he twisted the belt about it, and flung it with all his force into the water. A wondrous sight he saw, for, as the sword touched the water, a hand rose from out the deep, caught it, "'brandished it thrice, and drew it beneath the surface. "'Sir Bevadier hastened back to the king "'and told him what he had seen. "'It is well,' said Arthur. "'Now bear me to the water's edge, "'and hasten, I pray thee, "'for I have tarried over long, "'and my wound has taken cold.' "'So Sir Bevadier raised the king on his back "'and bore him tenderly to the lonely shore, "'where the lapping waves floated many an empty helmet.' and the fitful moonlight fell on the upturned faces of the dead. Scarce had they reached the shore, when there hove in sight a barge, and on its deck stood three tall women, robed all in black and wearing crowns on their heads. "'Place me in the barge,' said the king, and softly Sir Bevedere lifted the king into it. And these three queens wept sore over Arthur, and one took his head in her lap and chafed his hands, crying, "'Alas, my brother, thou hast been overlong in coming, "'and, I fear me, thy wound has taken cold.' "'Then the barge began to move slowly from the land. "'When Sir Bevedere saw this, he lifted up his voice "'and cried with a bitter cry, "'Ah, my lord Arthur, thou art taken from me, "'and I, whither shall I go?' "'Comfort thyself,' said the king, "'for in me is no comfort more. "'I pass to the valley of Avalon.' "'to heal me of my grievous wound. "'If thou seest me never again, pray for me.' "'So the barge floated away out of sight, "'and Sir Bevedere stood straining his eyes after it "'till it had vanished utterly. "'Then he turned him about and journeyed through the forest "'until, at daybreak, he reached a hermitage. "'Entering it he prayed the holy hermit "'that he might abide with him, "'and there he spent the rest of his life "'in prayer and holy exercise.' but of King Arthur is no more known. Some men indeed say that he is not dead, but abides in the happy valley of Avalon until such time as his country's need is sorest, when he shall come again and deliver it. Others say that of a truth he is dead, and that in the far west his tomb may be seen, and written on it these words, Here lies Arthur, once king, and king to be. End of Section 7, recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah.